Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude and over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Erin here. We're wicked pumped up about today's episode because we are interviewing one of my favorite food bloggers, um, who I will announce in a minute. But first, we've got some announcements. A reminder that I created the Functional Holidays group over on Facebook so we can offer up some holistic support during this busy time. I've got some of my favorite ladies coming up with some awesome content for you guys. It's all for free. We've got recipes coming your way, yoga videos, home workouts, some grounding practices, meditations. Personally, I'm wicked excited. Uh, There'll be new content every single day starting this Friday, November 17th, and it's going to run through Sunday, November 16th. 26, so right through Thanksgiving. I'll be hopping on to do some Facebook Live Q&A. Kyle's going to be on there as a moderator, and she's probably going to teach people how to mispronounce words. And then there's there's also going to be some exclusive giveaways offered only to this group. So this is something that we might keep on running throughout the holidays if you guys are into it. So come on over, join the group, bring a friend. Everybody's welcome here. Again, it's totally free. And then there are so many words I have yet to mispronounce. I mean, truly, this could just <laughs> go could. on forever. Yeah, it's a very good point. Keep it running into two, 2018. Um, yeah. And then I've got the holiday e-cookbook. It's 20 holiday recipes that I've been making for years, so I know that they're good. Your family will dig them. Um, some of them have already been published. Some have not. But now they're all packaged up in one place, and you can get it for free if you subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a rating. That's the stars and then leave us a written review and when you've done all that email me erin at erinholthealth.com and let me know that you did all these things and also let me know what name you use to leave the review so i can check it out and this offer is going to end on thanksgiving all right today we are interviewing julia mueller pronounced bueller uh have that that note there because i'm like i'm gonna butcher this name um as in ferris bueller am i saying this right Yes. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I get a lot of Mueller, um, but no, it's okay, Mueller. <laughs> perfect. Um, so she, or you, Julia, she's the recipe developer, photographer, and shenanigans writer over at theroastedroot.net. She is author of two cookbooks, Delicious Probiotic Drinks and Let Them Eat Kale, and is currently working on her third book, which is tentatively set to publish next November. Her blog is one of my absolute favorites and offers recipes that are gluten-free, dairy-free, refined sugar-free, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, low FODMAPs. There is truly something for everybody. So welcome, Julia. We're so stoked to have you here. 
Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be chit-chatting with you ladies too. Awesome. All right. Well, let's dive into it. So first question is, I guess, the obvious place to start. You've been food blogging for six years. Can you tell us a little bit about how and why you started a food blog? Yeah, absolutely. So like many other food bloggers, I started my blog as just a hobby. Um, I had recently graduated with a master's in finance and was looking for a job back in 2011. And I remember feeling completely uninspired by the jobs I was interviewing for. And I just felt like a fake every time I was answering questions at an interview. It just, it didn't feel right at all. Um, So while I was kind of in hot pursuit of a career, I started a blog as just a way to unleash some uh, some creative energy. And at that time, I was eating a paleo diet and wanted to share my recipes and discoveries with my friends, family, and really whoever would listen. Um, Paleo was still really new back then. Um, So during that time, there weren't many resources for folks who ate gluten-free or paleo. So I thought it would be an excellent way of being a good resource for people who were just, you know, wanting to get into the habit of eating cleaner or for those who needed to eat a restricted diet for health reasons. Um, So for the first three years of blogging, I worked um, at a winery and then a marketing firm until I was able to get my blog to the point that I could actually make a living off of it. Um, So at the point that I decided to pursue, and and at that point, basically, when I, you know, realized that, hey, I'm on to something, then I decided to pursue blogging full time. Um, But I'm not going to sugarcoat it, you know, through working full time and also blogging on the side uh, required a lot of time and energy. But um, yeah, I knew that there was a reason I was at it and so passionate about it. So I'm so happy that I stuck with it. That's awesome. I feel like that's, that's, I've seen that on um, social media on, on Instagram where somebody is blogging and you kind of follow them along on their transition from when they're still working full time and then like writing blogs at like 2am and then they're starting to be like, okay, I need to scale back on my job because you can only juggle that for so long. So, and you did that for three years, right? Before you... Um, ended up kind of moving into blogging full time? Yeah, exactly. So um, it's funny. I mean, I was working probably 50, 60 hours a week. And I mean, sometimes even more than that. And, um, you know, definitely the there wasn't a whole lot that, of free time that I had, you know, that I could focus on other things outside of work and blogging. But, um, you know, I was so passionate about the blog that it really didn't feel like work to me. You know, it was, I mean, things would get stressful every once in a while, um, for sure. But for the most part, I was just so, you know, excited to, to do what I was doing. It was like this little addiction I had. So, um, yeah, it's like, I couldn't, I couldn't help but do it. (laughs) That's really cool. Um, you said something before about restricted diet for health reasons that that was kind of one of your target audiences. Um, Mm -hmm. In episode five of our show, we interviewed a certified eating disorder dietitian. And one of the topics Mm -hmm. that came up was how restricted diets and health can sometimes be a, a bit of a mismatch. I think the, the end game for many of us is to be able to enjoy a wide variety of foods Um, keywords being both enjoy and variety. Uh, And at the same time, some folks do have to stay away from certain foods. And this can certainly be done in a healthful, nourishing way. So 
I really love what you said in your bio, this is on your blog, how you're passionate about nutrition and strongly believe it is possible to enjoy meals that are healthful yet delicious and comforting that also cater to dietary needs. So can you talk a little bit more about this, like how you support your physical body with your food choices, but how you manage to do that from a place of love and nourishment instead of restriction and punishment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is such an awesome question. Um, So to answer the first part of that question, how I support my body with food choices. For me, this this starts with the decisions I make at the grocery store. Um, You know, you can't eat what you don't buy, right? So I go to the store really frequently to ensure that my knee-jerk reaction to hunger is, you know, to make something nutritious rather than going with a less healthful yet convenient option. And I'm in the habit of making most of my meals at home. And when I do go out to eat, it's usually at a restaurant that I know will have nutritious gluten-free options. Um, So I always have a variety of vegetables in my refrigerator, you know, quality meat options in my freezer, and also unprocessed whole food, whole foods in my pantry. Um, So for me, it's really a matter of shopping the outer perimeter of the grocery store. You know, we always hear you should shop the the outer perimeter and not focus on processed foods. Um, And then, you know, also knowing if I do end up craving something indulgent, I can at least make it myself from scratch versus, you know, buying something that's heavily processed. So I try to support my body with rational food choices rather than, you know, basing it on emotions alone. Um, And the second part of that question, I think, is, you know, actually one of the most important topics in our health community right now, how I manage to um, or how I manage my food intake from a place of love and nourishment rather than restriction and punishment. Wow. (laughs) No. (laughs) Where to start with that? That's a big one. So, um, you know, ultimately what it comes down to is remembering my relationship with myself is hands down the most important thing in my life. Everyone approaches food with different emotions, and I definitely didn't always have a stellar relationship with food. Uh, once I realized I needed to eat a restricted diet to control autoimmune system or autoimmune symptoms. So in fact, I would say my relationship with food is a constant work in progress. Um, I'll give you a little background of my own experience of eating a restricted diet because I think it's really similar to what a lot of people are currently experiencing or you know have experienced in the past. Um, so your listeners may or may not know, but I have IBS and, you know, I've battled to get my gut healthy, um, you know, to, to a well-functioning state for a number of years. So I do eat a low inflammatory diet, which, you know, you could call it modified paleo if you wanted to give it a title. Um, it's basically kind of like paleo plus rice. And I eat that way as a way of controlling my, um, my GI symptoms, So when I carefully pay attention to the foods I eat, my symptoms basically disappear and I feel great. But when I get off track, you know, my body backlashes and my IBS symptoms return. So depending on how off track I get, um, it can be either easy to return to normal and it can only take a few days or it can actually take a few months. Mm. Um, So knowing how painful and, you know, inconvenient (laughs) those symptoms can be, I choose to eat a diet with no gluten, dairy, or refined sugar, and I, I limit my intake of beans and alcohol to a bare minimum. So essentially, I've kind of figured out over the years what works best you know, for me. Um, so for a long time, I did put myself in food jail. 
you know, I used to have a great deal of anxiety when it came to food because I felt like I had to constantly justify the decisions that I was making to other people. Um, you know, when in reality, no one was actually putting me that in that position, you know, and if they were, then it's, you know, I didn't need to be spending time with them anyway. Um, and I also used to self-sabotage when it came to food. So I would feel guilty anytime I ate sugar, you know, even if the sugar was unprocessed and came in the form of like a healthier dessert, I would feel guilty if I ate too many carbs. And, you know, when I say carbs, I mean like organic brown rice or sweet potato or, you know, not a heaping mound of pasta or white bread. But, you know, even then, like I, I would know if I was eating too many carbs and I would feel guilty over it. So, um, that emotion of guilt actually did come from a well-intentioned place. You know, it was associated with the fact that I knew that too much sugar or the wrong carbohydrates would upset my digestive system. Um, but I would often forget why I was limiting my sugar and carbs in the first place. So, you know, without the why, then I was just left with, you know, super obsessive behavior. So you can see how it's easy to allow your mind to go to a really negative spot and spiral out of control with your own rules. Um, the end result of feeling guilt surrounding food is I had a habit of not eating enough carbohydrates to support my, my energy output. Um, so I do high-intensity interval training workouts, and I also jog regularly. Um, and I love having an active lifestyle. So my body requires carbohydrates to restore my glycogen sure, levels. Yeah. Yeah, it's so it's so important. And, you know, we could go into the whole ketosis thing, but I feel like ketosis only applies to like a tiny percentage of the population. So, um, you know, that could be saved for a different yeah, podcast. Right. <laughs> but um, but so limiting my carb intake for the sake of sparing my digestive system while still doing these intense workouts led to hormonal imbalance. It led to brain fog. Um, overall just negative thinking and then I'd snap you know my body would no longer allow me to not eat the macronutrient that I was nearly omitting and it would essentially just take over which translated to me totally overdoing it so I'd reintroduce whole grains or alcohol or sugar and my body would just revolt um, which then would upset my digestive system and make me feel even worse so the cycle would just continue on and on. So, um, you know, in essence, I learned that for me, putting on my blinders, giving myself rules and telling myself I have to eat a certain way backfired 100% of the time. And um, to me, you know, this is where personalized nutrition and finding your own balance is key, which the majority of the time, your own balance will not necessarily be the norm. And it's certainly probably not going to look like the standard American diet. Um, so to bring all this full circle, once I identified this self-destructive pattern, I made it a point to change it because who wants to live a life of guilt and self-sabotage, right? So I decided to train my mind in order to break the pattern. I decided to improve my relationship with myself so that I could better um, have a better relationship with everything else in life. So this meant speaking to myself with respect every single day and giving weight to my thoughts and feelings, you know, really looking at them rather than burying them. Um, it means looking at overall health in a rational way, you know, using the mechanics of digestion or understanding the mechanics of digestion and also realizing what macronutrients my body requires based on how much I've been exercising. Um, you know, knowing that after I work out, my body is going to need quality carbohydrates and protein. So, you know, you can't run 13 miles and then just go ahead and eat a salad. 
Um, so loving myself sometimes means reminding myself that eating too many raw vegetables or you know, too much protein is going to give me gas and not eating enough carbohydrates will result in a crash. So, um, you know, loving myself also means working out a little less intensely. It, it means slowing down and treating each and every action and meal with respect. Um, it means indulging from time to time because my body likely needs whatever it is that I'm craving and eating every meal with positive thoughts, you know, knowing that I'm giving my body a gift versus a curse. Um, so when you decide to treat yourself with love and respect, your mental clarity is much stronger and you allow your intuition to reign. And, um, you know, this inevitably results in choosing a lifestyle that is nourishing and pleasurable all around. So if I could give others advice, I would say, you know, just remember your body truly does hear everything your mind says. And the way I see it, imperfection is sexy. So it's okay to not have a perfect diet and it's okay to not be perfect. I love that. I love yeah, all you just of said that. So, <laughs> wow. so much you just said. Um, one thing that I want to touch upon is uh, how your your relationship to yourself sort of drives your, your food decisions. Um, and you know, mm -hmm. it's not like that happened overnight, right? That required a lot of awareness and attention. And, and this is something that just takes so much time. And it's not something that we always are prepared to give ourselves when it comes to food, but it is so, so, so individual. And it's, it's, there's no guru and there's no diet book and there's no practitioner that are going to be able to hand you over these answers. It is truly an individual experience. But I love how you just keep coming back to self and kind of checking in. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that's something that I personally have to do as somebody who does have an autoimmune disease. And I obviously am, am symptomatic. And I food mm -hmm. is such a, a way to manage that. Thank goodness we have, you know, we have those tools at our disposal, like how lucky are we. But I always have to kind of like, pause check-in is this coming are these food decisions coming from a place of self-compassion and love or is it from a place of fear and restriction and sometimes I have to ask myself that question on a daily basis especially if I'm stressed out you know because I old habits oh, yeah. die hard right and so like those food things come rushing right right back at me but ultimately um I think you know people will say oh, it's so hard to eat the way that you eat and for me I'm like no, it's so hard to feel like crap all the time. It's so hard oh, to definitely. wake up and be, you know, covered in pain head to toe. It's so hard to not know how you're going to feel every single day. The diet stuff is easy, man. You know, it's like. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you're like, I got that yeah, pig. <laughs> like that stuff is easy. Um, so, mm -hmm. and I also want to touch upon the carbohydrate thing, especially now because low carb, you know, does. It, it's it's sort of all the rage again. I mean, you touched upon ketosis and the ketogenic diet, which is huge right now. And I, I do think there is a time and a place for that. And I do think it can be an extraordinarily therapeutic approach for some people, but not for everybody. And just because it's the trend of the moment doesn't mean that everybody needs to to do it, right? And I, I so I just mm, absolutely. really love um, your kind of your whole riff on carbohydrate because I do get asked that question quite a bit. And it's funny because, you know, as, as children of the, the 80s and 90s, of course, we have the fat phobia, right? So I have a lot of clients who mm -hmm. are still like nervous about the fat thing. And now we're mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the past few years has been more carbohydrates are, are the enemy. And so now we're afraid of carbohydrates. And I even have some people who think too much protein is too much protein. So I'm like, okay, so if we've demonized all three macronutrients, what do we have left? <laughs> like, <laughs> right, what are exactly. We here? And, you know, even with this whole, um, and I'm certainly not knocking it, but paying attention to anti-nutrients and lectins and things, you know, even fruits and veggies mm-hmm. become like scary foods. So it's like, you mm-hmm. can make a case where you just demonize every single food, but at some point you need to put away that food fear and just freaking eat too. And I think that can sort of be the tricky thing when you're trying to manage a chronic disease through diet, like where do you draw Mm -hmm. the line? But I think your point is so, is so uh, profound. It's like, you just got to keep checking in and make your relationship to yourself. Number, number one in self, as we talked about last episode, it's more than just your body. It is what's, you know, encased in your meat suit too. It is your, your mind, your body (laughs) and your soul. So that was all awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's funny. It's, you know, the more I research, um, you know, I've been researching hormonal health a lot lately, too. And it's funny, because they, you know, the articles I'm reading talk a lot about fat as well. And um, I remember that back in the 90s, you know, it was like all about low fat yogurt and low fat milk and low fat everything. And these articles I'm reading are, you know, constantly saying, like, you know, if you have a hormonal imbalance, it could be because you're not getting enough saturated fat. Um, horror you know, so that's of all horror. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. And, um, you know, and carbohydrates, they, they're important for horm- hormonal health, too, because they actually help uh, your body get rid of estrogen. So, you know, if you're an estrogen-dominant person and your progesterone levels are low, then you need those carbohydrates. So there's so many different things at play. So, and as you mentioned, having an autoimmune disease like throws a whole monkey wrench into that too. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing for sure to figure out what's right for you and what works for your lifestyle. Um, but yeah, the key is knowing like this is going to take time. It's not going to be overnight, you know, exactly what you said. It's something that happens in baby steps over a long period of time. And just having the wherewithal to keep checking in with yourself and keep coming back to self, I think Definitely. is super important. Awesome. So um, I've loved your recipes. Let's switch gears here a little bit. Your recipes and your food photography for a while, but what really made me be like, oh, hey, there's actually a person behind this. And I actually really like her was the blog that you wrote called my journey with gut health. Um, mm-hmm. My own journey with gut health has been such a long and winding road that I'm always drawn to other people's stories. And yours had such humor out of the gate that it really caught my attention. <laughs> I'm going to write something uh, or read something that you wrote. Um, if this post had an alternative title, it would be, no, I'm not pregnant. I just have IBS. Or I ate a slice of pizza and didn't poop for three days. Or what happens after I eat French fries or revenge of the beer or something of that nature. So all of those are hilarious. And I think that something that everybody who has ever experienced IBS or SIBO or parasites, candida, any type of gut dysfunction, we can all certainly relate to that. But I also love your disclaimer in the post, which says, if you're experiencing severe symptoms, follow your gut and seek medical attention. There's so much online chatter about gut health. And I think that's great. I really do. I've um, certainly found a fair amount of good, relevant information on blogs. And I'm really, truly grateful for that. It does provide people with a starting point. But something that we don't always understand in this culture is that just because something worked for one person 
doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you. We, we sort of have this collective idea that, oh, that person has a six pack, so I'm just going to do exactly what they do and then I'll get a six pack. But it doesn't always work that way. This is especially true for nutrition and gut health. You can always try something that somebody else suggests, but that's not necessarily going to guarantee it's what your body needs. I mean, just as you're saying, it was such a, uh, a long process figuring out how many carbohydrates you specifically need. That's going to be so different than, you know, Tom or Sally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I think this can be one of the, the biggest issues we run into when we gather all of our health info from blogs or Instagram or what have you, rather than seeking out experienced clinicians who have been in the trenches with people and have been able to see what works and what doesn't for a wide smattering of people, right? It's so easy to get down or get lost down internet rabbit holes. And I think you have to be careful when someone portrays an overly simplistic explanation of anything, especially the gut. Um, I've been doing here, up here in New Hampshire, a series of workshops on gut health. And I talk about the gut for literally two and a half hours straight. And I barely Mm -hmm. scratch the surface of what's going on there, right? It's so complex. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, so many people will ask me a question during those lectures. And I'm like, um, it depends. Like that's my like go-to answer, which is so <laughs> annoying and not what anybody wants to hear, but it's just so individual. So I really, really love your post because it goes into such great detail. You can really see how complex this issue is. Um, you explain what, what things that you, you did that worked. And you also explain that you worked with an integrative practitioner, right? And you do this little recap mm-hmm. at the end where you're, you're not like, saying everybody go out and do this you're simply saying hey here's what worked for me to alleviate my ibs symptoms now you already touched a little bit about the diet stuff but with all of that said and done can you rattle off the top three things that you felt helped you the most with your ibs because ibs is a huge huge deal it's uh, very very common so i think this could be really helpful for some folks to to hear and maybe try to implement some things they might not have tried yet yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's funny. The more I talk on social media or just my own blog about IBS or just gut issues in general, the more people just kind of come out of the woodwork, totally. you know? I mean, I got a lot of emails after that post, a lot of emails, um, you know, people saying like, hey, this is what's going on with me and thank you so much. This is what was helpful for me and Um, hey, have you tried this? This is what worked for me, you know, so I actually got some really good resources from writing that post as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it was amazing. It's funny when you open up about stuff like um, gut health, how or just anything that's personal in general, you know, these people come out of the woodwork, and they just want to be there to support you. And um, so yeah, I mean, one of my biggest concerns with blogging is I want to be a part of the solution rather than the problem. I mean, there's so many people talking out there and, um, you know, a lot of it is good information. Some of it's not so great, but I just want to be a part of the solution. So, so for me, writing a post on gut health takes a tremendous amount of time and research because the very last thing I want to do is, you know, trigger someone's disordered eating habit or give advice that worsens someone's symptoms. Um, The last thing I want is for someone who already eats a balanced, nutritious diet and can tolerate most foods to read something that I've written and be like, oh, I'm I'm not going to eat burgers anymore or I'm not going to... 
Right. Yeah. To associate something um, negatively, you know, or I'm not going to drink beer anymore. Like, like what? <laughs> what? Are, you know, where is the fun in that? So if you have a fabulous digestive system, you know, an amazing absorption and are giving yourself quality nutrients, I just don't see why you would change it unless there's a medical reason to do so. So, I mean, it's funny how comparative we are by nature. To your point, um, you know, if we see someone with a six pack, we're tempted to do what they do, but there's so much information we don't have on that person. You know, we don't have a clue what their DNA looks like, how strong their gut biome is, um, whether or not their eating habits would actually work for us long term in our own lives, and and so much more. Hormonal um, health. You mean you, you touched know, upon hormones? Like, oh, what the heck definitely. Is going on with their hormones, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, one of my friends recently went raw vegan, and he dropped like all of his body fat within two weeks. And, you know, he was super, super pumped about it. And I saw him and I was like, oh man, maybe I should try, you know, going raw vegan for a week. (laughs) And then, you know, and then my self-awareness came back to me and I realized that if I ate that many raw vegetables and that much fruit, I would basically explode into a cloud of gas. I mean, that's (laughs) what would happen for me. Um, You know, so what seems to be working really well for him would not work for me by any stretch of the imagination. So, um, and so, you know, you had asked what the, the, my three things that helped me out the most, um, you know, it's funny because the three things that have helped me the most all relate to mindset or thought patterns. Um, so, you know, number one, I would say really understanding the mechanics of digestion. So we often just eat what we eat and forget about the entire process of digestion um, when really this is one of the things that we should be focusing on first and foremost. So I recently read Deepak Chopra's book, Perfect Digestion, and it definitely improved my thought process when it comes to food. So I'll share some of the takeaways I got from that book, which have really helped me out a lot. Um, two of the biggest habits or you know, two big habits that people have that really throw off our digestive systems um, you know, first we don't chew our food. So instead we, we eat in a hurried, rushed, stressed manner. Um, I have a habit of wolfing down food while standing up and, you know, need to remind myself to take some time with my meals and chew thoroughly and just sit down and relax and enjoy. Um, and secondly, we tend to eat when we aren't physically hungry or we overeat. And this is huge. Um, you know, this is a really big deal. So when you feel physically hungry, your stomach is sending you signals that your digestive enzymes are active and they're ready to take on food. But if you eat when you aren't hungry, you're essentially smothering the fire with too much wood. Um, so, you know, for stellar digestion, you're supposed to, to put down your fork between bites. You're only supposed to eat until you're 80% full and you're supposed to eat your largest meal in the middle of the day, which is uh, when your metabolism is at its highest. So I try evaluating what my body feels like processing before I actually eat to ensure that my digestive tract is is able to efficiently process the content of my meal. Um, you know, and being mindful of the digestive process has helped me out tremendously. I also I try to never eat when I'm upset, um, you know, because the emotions you feel while eating play a huge role in, in how the food is digested. So 
it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, the self is so much more than just your body. It's, you know, it's something spiritual as well. And that I think needs to be taken into account while you're eating as well. You know, your emotions really do play a role in digestion. Um, everything is interconnected. So when your mind is stressed, your body doesn't function as well. And this includes digestion. Um, and then number two, uh, paying attention to my macronutrients and my micronutrients. Uh, so when you're an active individual, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but when you're an, an active individual who also has dietary restrictions, it can be easy to overdo it on one macronutrient at the expense of another. Um, so while I started started balancing out my meals more, uh, you know, ensuring that I get enough carbs and protein relative to the amount of fat and fiber I consume, my GI symptoms improved substantially. So I also pay attention to the times of day that I eat um, various types of food. So, you know, for instance, I eat carbs and protein after I exercise, which usually falls, you know, on the lunch hour, uh, whereas I'll, I'll try to keep dinner fairly light and, you know, I'll eat things like a veggie stir fry or soup or something with low carbohydrate content for dinner. Um, and then, you know, my, my third thing that's helped me out the most is really just replacing these unproductive thought patterns with wellness research and with self-care. Um, many of us are so addicted to our own tragedy that we forget how much power we have in our lives. Um, but when we choose to do research and to understand the underlying causes of what we're going through so that we can fix or improve the issue rather than allowing a thought pattern to run rampant, um, you know, we can really be our own hero in any situation, and that includes health issues. So, you know, and in reading up on my medical condition is also my way of asking for help. You know, we forget to do that a lot. We, you know, tend to not ask for help, but essentially doing that research is my way of saying help. Um, so the way I see it, I don't know everything there is to know about IBS or candida or leaky gut. Um, but there are some really powerful individuals out there who do. And taking the time to put my condition in their hands, so to speak, and absorbing information is so relieving. Some of my best resources have been uh, Chris, Chris Kesser, Cresser. So chriscresser.com is a huge resource we that I him. use. Um, he, yeah. yeah, no, Definitely. he's amazing. And he actually just released a book. I know, I just but, got it in the mail um, yesterday and I'm so excited. Oh, I need to get it. See, I haven't gotten it. It looks like it's <laughs> going to be like it. a good read. Um, so I'm really excited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, good. No, yeah, no, that's okay. I really need to to read his book too. But but yeah, so for those who don't know who uh, Chris Cresser is, he's an expert in GI issues and autoimmune disease. And he also has a ton of articles and podcasts on his site that are just incredibly helpful for all sorts of, um, you know, immune disorders. So, so also uh, Brooke Kalanick, uh, her site is betterbydrbrooke.com. Uh, she's an endocrinologist, so she specializes in hormone health. Um, and, you know, also Rob Wolf, what Rob Wolf and his books and his website have been awesome resources for me. So, so there are plenty of experts out there who give actionable solutions. So for me, making changes based on that research has been enlightening. I mean, and, you know, through the process, you do realize, okay, I tried this and it didn't really work or I didn't see any changes. You know, you kind of like gauge it based on your own experience, but but really listening to other people has been pretty awesome. Um, 
So also when I find my symptoms return or, you know, I find myself feeling low, I also try to do something that is, you know, both productive for my health and also just makes me feel good. Like getting a massage or dry brushing before a long hot shower, you know, or drinking a hot mug of peppermint tea. Like these things are simple, they're good for you, and they also just feel so good. Um, and it can be something so simple yet soothing to relieve the stress and anxiety. I just want to say, oh my God, so well, much. Well, it's stuff. just like let's <laughs> let's just highlight a few things for the cheap seats in the back here. So Julia yeah. is saying <laughs> yes. that the ticket to managing her illness is not necessarily so much diet and supplementation and a magic pill, but mindset. Mm-hmm. Is that what? Totally. And you 100%. I love, I love all the digestion <laughs> stuff. That's one of the big things I talk about in my lectures. It's, I'm like, everybody wants to know, okay, well, what do I eat? What do I not eat? What are the supplements? What do I do? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of it starts in your mind. So I'm so glad to, mm-hmm. to hear you say that. And I love what you said about we're addicted to our own tragedy. Like, oh, how true is that? Oh totally. Yeah. I yeah, wrote that down. <laughs> yeah. I think we, I, I mean, I keep pulling it back to that, the whole chronic illness piece because it's so, you know, such a big thing in our culture. Um, we can become really, we can identify ourselves with, with our ailments and our illness. And especially if you've, if you've mm-hmm. sort of felt unwell for a long time and, and doctors have said, hey, there's nothing wrong with with you. Your blood work is normal, right? When you first mm-hmm. get that diagnosis, it can feel so validating that you kind of attach yourself to it. And it almost mm, becomes yes. a situation of like, well, who am I without this disease? Um, it's a real mind mm-hmm. F, you know? So I love the idea of being your own, your own hero. Um, I really love that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that I think is, is huge right now. So, I mean, one of my friends, uh, one of my best friends actually had Lyme disease and it wasn't one of those situations where it just like kind of went away after a month or so. Like it really stuck around with her and it was debilitating. And, um, you know, she had it for five years and the only thing that helped her was going to a naturopathic doctor. And, um, even after she kind of got rid of it and was able to, uh, you know, fix her symptoms through diet. And she actually eats AIP, uh, which is like the most restricted diet you can possibly eat. So she, um, you know, keeps her symptoms at bay by eating AIP. But um, the mind thing for her too was, you know, she had to go to therapy to be told like, I am not sick. That is not who I am. I am not a sick person. That's not who I want to be. Like I'm a fun, vibrant individual who has so much life left. And I think that that's, you know, a huge thing that anyone with an autoimmune disease has to kind of to deal with. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that, that, absolutely. Um, so speaking of digestion, did, did, I, did anyone <laughs> you did out there re- listen to me actually correctly pronounce that? I'm we not going to say it again because I'm <laughs> only going to screw up. I sure did. I was like, Erin, digestion, digestion, digestion. <laughs> I am a dietitian. Okay. Ridiculous. Um, so we did have a question about fermentation and mm-hmm. selfishly, we, we really just want to learn more about this. Mm-hmm. So you have a book called Delicious Probiotic Drinks that includes recipes for kombucha, kefir, kefir, not kefir, um, <laughs> ginger beer, and so much more. So first, can you tell us what fermentation is? And secondly, if someone is interested in it, where do they even start? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, fermentation is so much fun. It's um, so fermentation is essentially the breakdown of a food by bacteria and yeast. So, you know, the end result is a probiotic filled drink or, um, you know, or a probiotic filled substance like food, like sauerkraut with some, some tiny little trace of alcohol. So with fermentation, your inputs are typically some type of food, um, water and potentially sugar if the food itself isn't naturally high in sugar. So for instance, when we ferment cabbage to make sauerkraut, all we really do is allow the cabbage to sit in a weighted, um, you know, weighted in water at a comfortable room temperature. And the bacteria and yeast that are naturally occurring inside the cabbage will activate and feed off of the starch and they'll feed off of the sugars within uh, the cabbage, resulting in a probiotic rich sauerkraut. Um, so like I said, anytime you ferment something, a small amount of alcohol is the byproduct. So drinks like uh, water, kefir, I always want to say kefir. <laughs> Here okay. I am mispronouncing right, words. <laughs> See, I don't know. I had to YouTube it. I was like, yeah. how do I pronounce this? <laughs> yeah, it's just, I just always want to say kefir. <laughs> so but does yeah. Aaron. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, probiotic drinks like, you know, kombucha or ginger beer. And, you know, when I say ginger beer, I mean, not like ginger ale, like the soda that you would buy at the store, but, but actual uh, fermented ginger beer have a tiny amount of alcohol in them. Um, so, so where to start with fermentation? So if you're the kind of person that likes to ease into things and to understand everything before starting a project, you know, I'd say making homemade yogurt is an awesome start, you know, provided you aren't lactose intolerant. But if you are lactose intolerant, you can definitely still make uh, yogurt using coconut milk as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yogurt only takes 24 hours to ferment. And, you know, through that process, you just get to understand the, the process of fermentation really quickly and easily. So um, also fermenting foods would be a great start as well. So, you know, making sauerkraut is a super easy, um, easy thing to do. And, you know, really the only difficult part about making it is having the patience to check on it daily while it's, while it's yeah. fermenting. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, but, but really the concept of fermentation is the same across the board you know, but the amount of time it takes to prepare, um, a certain fermented food or drink varies. And, um, you know, with kombucha, I would strongly advise reading up on the whole process before you even buy the tools you need to start. Um, you know, probiotic drinks are one of those things that you really don't want to mess with, uh, because if your culture does go bad, you can end up ingesting a drink that's either harm, you know, a harmful pH level to your stomach or it can contain harmful bacteria and yeast, which could really mess up your mm. digestive system. Um, so that's, you know, that's not to say that it's difficult to be successful with probiotic biotic drinks, um, you know, because it's not. It's just to say that it's really important to do your research and to never take any chances. Like, you know, read the instructions like four times before starting that sort of thing. Yeah. Um but, you know, fermentation is definitely a fun little project and the end result is something that's super beneficial to your health. So I would definitely encourage anyone who's interested to give it a try. And it's cheaper. I mean, yeah. I've, I've made kombucha at home and oh my God, there was a time there where I was, before I had ever tried to make it, mm -hmm. where I was just dropping so much money on, oh, yeah. on a drink. It was, it was crazy. So, and then making it at home, yeah, it was, it 
it definitely was something that I had to read the directions mm-hmm. multiple times to make sure that I was doing it right. And for sauerkraut, I actually took like a class in mm-hmm. in town just to because I needed the visual. I should have just gone yeah. on YouTube. That probably would have been cheaper. <laughs> There's so much well, information on YouTube. <laughs> there really is. Yeah, that was a great explanation. Um, and if anyone's looking for directions, just grab Julia's book. It's on Amazon. It's like $13 and it's awesome. So that's that yes is a thank you the ginger beer i'm like i would i'm i'm gonna buy the book just for the ginger beer recipe honestly yeah um yeah, yeah. My amazon cart tonight oh thank you <laughs> yeah no i mean ginger beer is is one of the it's i would say it's one of the more complicated ones so i mean i hope you have the patience to maybe try a couple times patience but... i do not have but <laughs> <laughs> that is not in your amazon cart <laughs> yeah i will say like heads up on ginger beer um you know when you when you do go to make it just try to keep it warm so i've had the best success when my ginger beer has fermented around like 75 to 85 degrees well that's actually a really good question um, so i've got a batch of booch mm-hmm. brewing right now and it's freaking cold here mm-hmm. in new hampshire is there a place yeah. in your like where do you keep it in your house to kind of keep it on the toastier side yeah. So, uh, during the winter, cause we were the same way. We don't, um, heat our house a whole lot. I mean, we keep our house at like 62 degrees, which for fermentation is not optimal. I mean, it'll still happen. Like you can still ferment kombucha at 62 degrees. It just takes a long okay. time. Um, but what we do is, um, like I have a space blanket and so this is actually funny. You should see this like Jerry rigged apparatus <laughs> that I've had. So, um, we have like a, a heating pad, you know, that, you know, say old people use for like, uh, for their backs when they like throw or out Kyle. their back. So, <laughs> or me, I mean, really anyone. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we have a heating pad that we wrap around it and, um, there's like this little, you know, there's a temperature gauge on there so you can, you know, determine what temperature you want it at. And then, um, so we'll kind of like tape that on there, keep it plugged in and then wrap a space blanket around it to insulate it. That's an so, awesome idea. I mean, that's if, yeah, I mean, that's if you're like really jonesing to get your kombucha done in like a timely manner, but yeah, like it still will ferment. It'll just take a lot longer. Like your bacteria will be kind of lazy at 60 degrees or, you know, even the low seventies. What, um, <laughs> one more question for you. How long do you usually let your kombucha mm-hmm. ferment? Yeah, as long as it's like a decent uh, temperature inside the house, you know, so say around somewhere between 70 and 80 degrees, I'll have the first, you know, the primary fermentation, I'll let that go for about seven days. And, um, you know, I do like two gallon jugs. So, um, you know, in the past, I've actually had like, like three or four two gallon jugs going at one time, you know, to add up to like, like 10 gallons of kombucha. Um, but in any case, so, uh, you know, we'll keep it at a good temperature and then, you know, seven days is really all you need for the first fermentation. And then if you've had experience with secondary fermentation, um, for me, that usually only takes like two or three days for, for secondary fermentation, but some people do let it go longer so that they have, you know, almost no sugar left in the, in the actual kombucha. Cause essentially the longer you let it go, the more sugar gets eaten right. up and then you're left with like a zero sugar drink. Cool. Um, that, that question has come up a couple of times, so I'm glad you covered it. Thank you. Let's yeah, keep absolutely. on talking about home cooking. Um, 
because you're clearly a wealth of knowledge. So I have found <laughs> that lack of time is really the biggest barrier to home cooked foods, right? Like everybody's running around with or like chickens with their heads cut off. People barely have enough time to shop, never mind prepare and cook their food. So a lot of the work that I do with my clients is is really education why cooking at home is so important and, and then evaluating schedules as well as exploring their relationship to their lives. Like, Hey, what needs to change in your life in order to create more time to do this and in order to value this more. But even if we do get over that time hurdle, I find that overwhelm is the next roadblock because people are scared to cook or they don't know where to start. Sometimes it's more of a logistical thing. Um, Kyle and myself, we've been cooking since we can remember. We've both got Italian blood in us. Mm -hmm. So being in the kitchen is kind of second nature to us, but that's really not the case for everybody. So curious to hear your thoughts. Do you think it's possible to eat well with minimal effort in time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, it's really easy to put cooking to the side when life gets busy. That's basically, you know, the number one thing we put to the side, the first thing we put to the side. Um, but I really wholeheartedly believe cooking doesn't need to be complicated or time consuming. In fact, I think it should be one of the easiest things that you do in any given day. Uh, my overall approach to cooking is minimalist um, in the sense that I try to keep my ingredients list pretty, pretty low, you know, to say fewer than 10 ingredients. And I often use just like one pot or skillet to prepare a meal, you know, not bringing out a barrage of tools. Um, and I almost always make meals that take, you know, for, you know, for myself, uh, about 15, 20 minutes to make. So if I'm making something for the blog, a lot of times I'll post recipes that do require more than 15, 20 minutes. But when I'm just cooking for myself, man, I just throw that stuff together so quickly. Um, but, but knowing some technique, <clears throat> excuse me, some some techniques to minimize time and effort is really the the busy family saving grace. So knowing how to roast or saute vegetables and meat is huge. Um, you know, if you can saute or roast vegetables with lean protein and have, you know, you know, toss in some spices for flavor, then you have yourself a clean and tasty meal that's super cost effective um, and also super easy to make to make. So for me, you know, my crock pot is one of my best friends. Um, I'll stick ingredients in there for a meal at night and the whole thing will just be done in the morning. And we're talking like like 10 minutes of prep for a meal that can easily feed between six and 10 people. Um, so I'm also in the habit of making big batches of rice and roasted vegetables every week so that when I have to, um, you know, when I, all I really have to do is just reheat them. And then I'll often stir fry just broccoli and carrots and kale together with some rice um, and then broil a piece of salmon in the oven. And that from start to finish, that meal takes me like 12 minutes on the dot to make. Um, and it's super nutrient dense. So um, where where does, oh, um, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm curious because, well, first of all, those were all like really, really good ideas. Everybody should be taking notes. And I want to send everybody, if you haven't been, haven't checked out uh, Julia's blog or her Instagram, go see the food she makes. It's incredible, but it's all like, it all is like really simple. I don't want to call it comfort food, but I mean, it is kind of comfort food. It's really simple stuff, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's clearly very creative. So I'm dying to know where that creativity comes from, because honestly, as somebody cooks all the time, even I'm intimidated by the stuff you're coming up with sometimes. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. 
Um, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with just loving variety. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. I put the same four meals on repeat all the time, but when I am bored of them, I'll start to, you know, get a hankering for something different and then I'll hop on Instagram or Pinterest and just see what's new in the health community. So, um, so in that sense, I do derive some inspiration from other recipe developers for sure. And I'll also kind of reverse engineer a meal that I've enjoyed at a restaurant. Um, so, you know, sometimes creativity just sneaks up on me too. Like a really good example is I made turkey broth a few days ago using a turkey carcass that I had just, you know, roasted. And there was a ton of meat left over on the bones and really without blinking an eye, I was like enchiladas. (laughs) I'm going to make enchiladas with that there turkey meat. So so I guess some of it has to do with, you know, what's already available to me, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, I think also having dietary restrictions and using in-season produce helps too to fuel creativity because I think having those parameters can kind of force you to get creative. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Um, so what advice would you give to somebody who – maybe doesn't know where to start with home cooked food. They're like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get in my kitchen. I'm going to cook more, Mm -hmm. but like, uh, where do I start? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, first I would tell them that it definitely gets easier for sure. Um, you know, when I first started cooking, it would take me like 10 minutes to chop an onion. And, um, you know, now I can have a whole meal's worth of food prepped in 10 minutes. It's just, it's really a matter of practice. So I would definitely, you know, let them know like, Hey, it's, it's cool. Like this, this will come together yeah, over time. Curve in the um, beginning. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I would tell a newbie cook to try to make it as fun and relaxing as possible rather than, you know, feeling tense through the process because then you're a lot more likely to stick with it when it's fun. So you know, cooking with friends is totally an awesome beginning, even if your friends don't know what they're doing either. Um, you know, start by looking up recipes you enjoy so that you can understand what goes into preparing that type of food and and start basic, you know, like things like guacamole or hummus or even homemade salad dressing are a great place to start because they don't require any actual cooking. They just require some preparation. Um, you know, and I always get a chuckle too when when I read the comments on my Instagram post because my followers will often tag their friends or family and make plans to prepare the recipes I've posted. Oh, so, so cool. you know, following yeah, no, it's I love seeing it because it's it's really awesome knowing people actually make my recipes. Um but yeah, I mean starting to follow a few food blogs and getting your friends together to make some simple dishes is an awesome place to start. And it's also, you know, kind of a neat little ritual that you can do every week as well. Um, Also watching good cooks do their thing is mega. So I learned everything I know about cooking vegetables and meat from my boyfriend. Um, He's a great cook. So he's the one that introduced me to the paleo diet six years ago. So I would chop up vegetables and watch him prepare these ginormous paleo meals Um, And it didn't take long for me to pick up on his techniques after watching and asking questions and helping out. So, so I would say, you know, if you have a friend or family member who is a great cook, simply watch what they do and ask them what they're doing. Um, You know, if you get confused, have them clarify and offer a helping hand as well, because, you know, that all is, is um, 
you know, really or even helpful. The, the food network and, or cooking shows. If you don't have somebody to like, oh, totally. That's oh how my God. I like learned. Yeah, yeah. Rachel Ray. Yes, that. <laughs> I watched Emer- Emerald Lagasse all throughout high school. Like, the, mm-hmm. I was obsessed with the Food Network, and I honestly, or totally. Jamie Oliver um, has a show, and I, I'm mm-hmm. like secretly in love with him. So he, I mean, just if you watch them, you kind of like pick it up through osmosis. Yeah, definitely. I really, I mean, I'm a huge fan of watching, and also like. Yeah, if you can get hands-on too, like that's always really helpful. But in the meantime, the Food Network is is pretty helpful. I guess for that's sure. true. You have to put what you learn into practice at some point. You can't just like, eat popcorn <laughs> and watch. Ordering takeout, and watching Barefoot Contessa. <laughs> there you like, go. I, I, think I'm, I think I'm getting it. <laughs> I'm nailing it. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, also knowing that it's okay to fail in the kitchen, we, we really all do. So, um, you know, for the newbie who, who just, you know, needs some experience, I would say try to approach cooking as one of those things that you don't have to be perfect at, you know, uh, because trying to be perfect definitely stifles creativity and it, and it stifles the fun. But, um, you know, knowing that it doesn't have to turn out 100% awesome all the time, just, really helps you take a adventurous approach for sure. Um, so also I would, I would tell the newbie cook to invest in some kitchen tools that are commonly used in recipes so that, you know, when they do um, go to make a recipe, they have what they need, you know, they'll have what they need to make simple, healthy meals. So, you know, some of my favorite tools are definitely my crock pot. Um, also my blender or, you know, even just like a, a food processor and then um, my big cast iron skillet is one of my favorites and also um, just a baking sheet for roasting vegetables um, and also a really good knife. I feel like you can do just about anything with those tools. Absolutely. that Those were like perfect foundation tools to mm-hmm. have, especially the knife. Sometimes I feel <laughs> like I can like feel the steam coming out of my ears when mm-hmm. I'm like o- over somebody's house trying to chop something with like the dullest butter oh knife my gosh, there ever the was. Yeah. It is the worst. <laughs> um, so Kate from Plates of Kate asks, how do you gain credibility when you were first starting out as a food blogger? Yeah. Um, so I think just posting consistently and also connecting with other bloggers, um, you know, once people realize that you're committed to your blog and that you intend to stick around your credit, your credibility just becomes pretty solid. Um, and this definitely takes time, you know, I mean, also it, it helps, uh, people to see you connecting with other bloggers as well, because then your voice seems more relevant in the community as a whole. I think there's a word of mouth element to it too. Um, you know, one of, once my readers actually started making my recipes, they'd leave comments saying how much they enjoyed it or, you know, whatever it is that they made. And they'd share their experience with their friends and family. So if someone makes a recipe from my site and loves it, you know, they're more likely to continue making my recipes. So I think consistently producing in-demand content has been, has been key for that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then, so I go on Instagram and I mean, the vast majority of people that I follow are other food bloggers. So Mm -hmm. how do you stay relevant, but still original in a world that is really now saturated with bloggers? Oh, man. (laughs) I know, Um, right? Honestly, I, 
Oh, I think it's because I don't care. <laughs> I mean, that's the best answer. I mean, awesome. <laughs> I do like, I mean, I do care, but I also don't. So, I mean, I care about the quality of work I do for sure. That's really important to me. Um, but I've really never been in the habit of comparing myself to other bloggers. And that probably sounds so th- sociopathic, no, but, it sounds amazing. but really not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. It's I kind of wish that everyone felt that way because I I feel bad for people when I, you know, when they post about, you know, comparing themselves to other bloggers. Every once in a while, you'll see bloggers post something about that. And I just, I feel bad because, yeah, it's like you're just digging yourself kind of like a holy hell right there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, not caring is what makes my work original, I think. Um, I'm lucky in the sense that the type of recipes I make are in demand. Uh, because people with dietary restrictions are constantly coming out of the woodwork. And even those who don't have dietary restrictions and are looking for ways of cleaning up their diet, you know, um, it's becoming bigger and bigger. So I also try to not fall into any food trend traps that I don't truly believe in. uh, Because if it isn't authentic to me, it's not going to be authentic to my audience. Um, I'm always aware of what's trending in the food world, but whether or not I decide to react to a trend by posting a recipe really depends on how relevant it is to my own life and if I see it sticking for me. Um, So I guess there's an intuition thing there too. You know, I try to avoid posting recipes that I think are going to be irrelevant in, say, two years. You're my favorite person. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be you. Yeah. This is awesome. <laughs> I think it also is important to like get out from behind the computer because mm-hmm. this this last week I followed um, two food bloggers and it was like they were chasing each other. Like there were two recipes that somebody had posted and I thought mm. that they were fairly like creative. Mm. And then the very next day or two right after that, the other person that I was following legit posted like the same kind of thing. Oh, so, yeah. mm. and it, and I've, and it happens a lot um, mm-hmm. that I've noticed and you know, whether it's like a sponsored product that somebody has sent and then like everyone is talking about it in the same week mm-hmm. Or it's everyone making the same recipes. I think you just have to, the second you lose that authenticity um, within yourself, I Mm -hmm. think that's when you start to just kind of like chase what other people are doing. Yeah. And it's just not a positive, you know, mindset for sure. No, no, that's, that's really all comparison. So, Mm -hmm. so since Thanksgiving is right around the corner, do you have any tips for meal swaps or any of your like favorite go-to Thanksgiving recipes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the holidays are an exciting time, but you know, the food thing can definitely be nerve wracking when you're cooking for a big groups of people you know, or if you or a family member have dietary restrictions, they can be a little bit stressful. Um, I generally find vegetable side dishes tend to go over really well at holiday dinners. And, um, you know, I have a lot of those types of recipes on my site under my side dish section. Um, Roasted vegetables are a huge favorite in my family. It's funny, like my sister will be like, you're making roasted vegetables, right? And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) per usual. (laughs) Um, It's so simple, but really like roasted vegetables are are huge in my family. And really anything with like butternut squash, green beans, or, you know, Brussels sprouts tends, you know, that tends to be a hot topic as well. 
Um, and the great thing about most side dishes is they can be prepared ahead of time or even made, um, you know, they, they can be made, you know, certain aspects can be done ahead of time. Like the vegetables can be chopped or the entire dish can be made itself ahead of time. And that can lessen your amount of work on the day of Thanksgiving or Christmas. So I would say, you know, one major tip is if something can be made a day or two in advance, make it in advance so that you're not trying to cook the turkey, roast the vegetables, you know, and bake the pie all at the same time. Uh, so one rec more recommendation would be to, to choose which recipes you're making well in advance so that you can also coordinate with family. Um, you know, a little preparation in that regard is definitely, it, it uh, works wonders for sure. Good, all good suggestions. <laughs> yeah, all of it. I know, I just keep writing. I've never, I don't know that I've written this much in an episode before. I'm like, ooh, that's a good idea. All right, so we're, we're just a little over an hour, so we'll close out here. But before we do, can you tell everyone where they can find you and give us any updates on your upcoming, uh, your upcoming book? Yeah, absolutely. So my blog, um, as you had mentioned before, it's theroastedroot.net. So that's where most of my work um, goes. And then I am writing a cookbook that the topic is paleo bowl food. Mm -hmm. So my editor and I are currently going back and forth in terms of what the title is going to be. We think right now, and I love this because I use this word all the time, but we think right now the title is going to be Epic Paleo Bowls. Awesome. Um, yeah, so essentially the idea behind the book is really just, you know, nutrient-dense meals. So I really, um, I didn't mention this earlier, but I really dislike the title paleo. Um, you know, it's, I am not a title person in general. I kind of shy away from them, but it really is, you know, the term that everyone recognizes um, as this sort of, you know, grain-free, uh, super nutritious uh, way of life. So so in any case, the, the book is really more centered around anti-inflammatory foods. So, you know, we call it paleo because that's what it is. And by nature, the paleo diet is super anti-inflammatory. But that's that's the, the whole purpose is to provide, you know, meals that are easy to prepare. So, you know, similar to what I do on my blog, they're going to be easy to make, um, but also very anti-inflammatory. So just really nourish, um, nourishing all around, but also great for people who, you know, suffer from uh, autoimmune disease or um, gut issues or, you know, a slew of other things. So they're just really going to be good go-to meals. So, um, so that should be published in November of 2018. And um, I'm about halfway through it right now in terms of recipes. So I've made about 50 recipes for the book right now. And, you know, every once in a while I get to a roadblock where I'm like, oh, man, what do I do next? But it's it's funny. It's like every once in a while, if you just give your mind a rest, you you just kind of pull that inspiration um, out of the woodwork. But but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited well, about we it. We are, too. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we are, too. <laughs> Well, thank well, you. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I cannot wait to yeah. go back and re-listen. I think that's a little narcissistic, but it's less so when we have a <laughs> when we have an interview. <laughs> so uh, I cannot wait because that was there's just so much good stuff there. So we really, really appreciate you coming on the show, and we'll link to all your goodies in our show notes for our audience. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this is the fir first podcast I've ever done. So no, it was really fun for me too. Yay. And you guys asked some really amazing questions. So. Well, you nailed it. So way to go.
(laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right, you guys, that's another episode. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.